faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Rosenthal. And on this pilot episode, I thought I would take a little time to discuss what it means to be a humble skeptic, and why I chose this particular name for my new podcast. In case you're unfamiliar with my previous work, I was one of the co-founders of a weekly radio broadcast called The White Horse Inn, which I ended up serving as executive producer for over 30 years. And I also recently served as the host of that program for just over three years. Now, while there will certainly be some overlap between what you'll hear on this new podcast and the kinds of shows I worked on over at White Horse, there will also be some differences. I'll certainly continue talking with a range of guests on topics related to Christian theology and apologetics. That's my home turf. But I also plan on talking with people from a wide variety of traditions and worldviews in order to learn more about what they believe and why. This relates to the reason I've chosen to title the show The Humble Skeptic Podcast. Because there are so many conflicting views out there in the marketplace of ideas, one has to approach the subject with a somewhat skeptical attitude. To give but just a single example, theism and atheism can't both be true because one view asserts what the other explicitly denies. So either one is correct or both views are wrong, but it's just not possible to affirm the validity of both perspectives at the same time. The same could be said of a host of other worldview options, which is why we need a healthy dose of skepticism as we think through religious and worldview claims. But this realization also calls for humility since we could be the ones operating on false assumptions about who we are or the nature of reality itself. In my own tradition, this perspective is actually encouraged. In one of his New Testament writings, Paul says this, Test all things, but hold on to the good. Basically, he's encouraging his readers to apply a healthy dose of skepticism to every idea, including our own. But of course, he also offers a warning. If we're too skeptical, we might just end up throwing out the good right along with the bad. The question, of course, is how do we do this? Well, rather than spending the next half hour or so discussing this topic in a rather abstract and philosophical way, I'd like to tell you a personal story that I think will help you to see where I'm coming from and where I'm going. A 
A few months ago, my dad happened to mention in passing that he saw Billy Joel perform at a piano bar in Los Angeles back in the days before the singer had become famous. At the time, I didn't think much of his comment until later it dawned on me that Billy Joel wrote his famous song, Piano Man, about his experience performing at a Los Angeles piano bar. According to Business Insider, Billy Joel is currently one of the top 10 best-selling music artists of all time, coming in at number seven, right behind Michael Jackson. And his song, Piano Man, was his first hit single, which rose to number 25 on the Billboard Hot 100 after its initial release in 1973. In 2016, Piano Man was included in the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry for a song that is, in their words, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Now, as I continued to reflect on my dad's story, I began to wonder whether he may have played a role, however small, in this culturally and historically significant artifact of American popular culture. Did he, for example, ever ask Billy Joel to play a song while he sat at the bar? Did he perhaps know John the bartender, who, according to the song, was quick with a joke or to light up a smoke? Did he ever discuss politics with one of the waitresses? Was my dad one of the businessmen who slowly got stoned after downing too many gin and tonics? Well, a few weeks went by and I happened to share dad's story with my brother who was staying with us for a few days. And as soon as I related some of the details, he decided to check Wikipedia to see if he could find information about the background of the song Piano Man. That's when we discovered that there were some serious problems with Dad's story. According to Wikipedia, Piano Man was based on Billy Joel's real-life experience as a lounge musician in Los Angeles during a six-month period that spanned from 1972 to 1973. When my brother pointed this out to me, I immediately recognized the difficulty. You see, before I had done any fact-checking, I simply assumed that my dad visited this piano bar sometime during his bachelor days when he lived in West Los Angeles, which would have been in the late 60s. But if Billy Joel performed at this piano bar in late 72, early 73, my dad couldn't have been there, since by that time our family had moved to the other side of the country, to the small town of Bluefield, West Virginia. As I began to look into this further, I discovered another problem with dad's account. When I asked, he couldn't recall the name of the piano bar, but he was confident that it was located on the corner of Western Avenue and Wilshire Boulevard. And yet, according to numerous online sources, Billy Joel used to play at a place called The Executive Room, which apparently was a little over three blocks further west, near the corner of Wilshire and Gramercy. So in light of all this conflicting information, I began to have doubts that my dad had actually been to this piano bar, which had served as the inspiration for the song Piano Man. I simply assumed that he had been mistaken. Perhaps he had seen another artist that reminded him of Billy Joel, or perhaps my dad's memory just isn't what it used to be. Then something interesting happened. As I was discussing these things with my mom, she paused for a moment and revealed to me that there was actually a time, while our family lived in West Virginia, that dad went back to Los Angeles for a few months in order to look for work. Not because I was simply too young to remember details of this kind, I decided to record our conversation. I don't remember how long he was gone, but it, I know that it got, it was long. Okay, so he was out in California looking for a job. Right. How long was he back before we moved? We, it was right away. Right away. So he right came away. back and then we moved. Right. Maybe within a month? Oh, yeah. Okay, oh, so yeah, because he got the job, so, so we had to get back out there. So that means if it was four to six months, it would have all been 73. You're right, Shane. That makes sense. He he would have been out there in early 73 because we moved. As soon as he got the job, 
we had to get everything done, moved, and then get back to L.A. for him to start the job. I do remember spring came and the daffodils bloomed and he was not there. I had gone out and picked daffodils and I broke out into a humongous rash <laughs> and had to go to Dr. Milchin. But dad wasn't there, so that was spring. So do you remember, had he been gone a while? No, I that don't. <laughs> okay, you just remember him not being there I just spring. remember he okay, was that's, that's a very good memory. Yeah. yeah. And then he comes back, and we move in the summer, so it's probably, it's spring to it was summer. It's very early summer, I think. So you remember the daffodils in the spring and him not being there. Yeah, and daffodils very early. Like March? Bluefield, I would say February or March. Ooh, that's interesting. We had tulips in the front, too, that came up. So late February, early March, yeah. he's not there. Yeah. Interesting. So with this new information in hand, I decided to look a little more closely into the details of my dad's story. Now that I knew he really had been in Los Angeles in the spring of 1973, I wanted to find out precisely when it was that Billy Joel played piano at the executive room on Wilshire Boulevard. As I researched this question, I soon discovered that there's actually a lot of conflicting information online. For example, though Wikipedia states that Billy Joel played at this piano bar sometime between 1972 and 1973, According to Encyclopedia.com, this took place in 1971. In fact, this new date appeared to be confirmed by information I discovered at BillyJoel.com. Now, given that this information came from Billy Joel's own website, I assume that its timeline of events would be the most chronologically accurate. But if true, this would invalidate my dad's story since he was nowhere near Los Angeles from 1969 until early 1973. Because of all the conflicting information I'd received, I decided to research this question further by listening to interviews with Billy Joel himself, including this conversation with Alec Baldwin. I got a record deal, and then I got traded to a record company on the West Coast called Family Records. And I, I recorded an album in, in L.A. I lived in L.A. for a little while. Uh, they said, okay, now you made the album. Now, now you've got an album. You need to promote it. You need to go on the road. Well, the album was <laughs> uh, mastered at the wrong speed. I sound like the Chipmunks. Well, it was speed it up. Kind of, yeah. Now, but, you did Cold Spring Harbor there. I did make. And did you do the there. next album out there? Actually, I dropped that aside. I had to get out of this horrible deal that I'd signed. And I hid in L.A., uh, and I worked in a piano bar. And this was down in the Wilshire District. <laughs> some people think I did it for years. I worked in this piano bar for six months. I needed to make some money. Right. I made Union Scale. I get tips. Mostly play the, you know, major seventh chords. Billy Joel covers similar ground in this conversation with Charlie Rose. I signed a bad deal. My first recording contract yeah. was a really bad deal. I signed away my copyrights, my publishing, my royalties. I was just so happy to get a record deal. I didn't know what I was signing. I didn't really have a lawyer representing me. So I realized this after about a year into this deal. I got to get out of this. That's when I moved to the West Coast and I got an attorney. I got an account and I said, I've got to get out of this deal. And to make a living, I worked in a piano bar in the Wilshire District in LA. Yeah. And that's where Piano Man came from. I wrote it in 1973 yeah. when I was living in Los Angeles, working in a piano bar, the executive room. But you were there for only six months. I did it for about six months, yes. 
So in this exchange, Billy Joel explains that about a year into his bad record deal, he moved to L.A. to get some legal help, which would have been sometime in the summer or fall of 1972. He also specifically states that he wrote Piano Man in 1973. Therefore, the information presented both on Encyclopedia.com as well as Billy Joel's personal website appears to be factually incorrect. The most reliable information, it turns out, comes from Billy Joel himself. Now, in light of the fact that I'd been led down the wrong path a few times thus far and had mistakenly relied upon false or misleading information, I decided to be a little more skeptical moving forward. With the information my mom provided, I was able to place my dad in the Wilshire district of Los Angeles in the spring of 73. But what if Billy Joel's six-month gig at the executive room actually started sometime in the fall of 72 and ended early in 73, just before my dad arrived in LA? In order to get really precise about the timeline, I started skimming through a couple of Billy Joel biographies. That's when I hit the jackpot. In his book, Billy Joel, The Life of an Angry Young Man, Hank Bordowitz says definitively that Joel made his debut at the executive room in December 1972. This would put him there until sometime in May of 1973. And since my mom has a specific memory of dad being away while the daffodils bloomed in late February, early March of that same year, I was now convinced that my dad's account was completely plausible after all. He had actually been in Los Angeles during the specific window of time in which Billy Joel was playing at the executive room piano bar. But then there was still the issue of the bar's location to sort out. So I called up my dad on the phone and started asking questions. Dad, do you by any chance remember the name of the piano bar that you went to when you saw Billy Joel perform? Uh, I don't know. That was so long ago. But I, I distinctly remember it because it was in a bank building and it was at the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and Western. It was a bar in, a, in the lobby of a, of a high-rise office building. I, I have a distinct memory of that. According to sources I've been able to find online, the name of the bar was the Executive Room. Does that ring any bells? That's entirely possible. Uh, this was, uh, what, 1973, and your mother helped me remember that by what you said. Uh, some of the descriptions and images of the executive room that I've been able to find online end up placing it closer to the corner of Wilshire and Gramercy. Does that location sound familiar at all to you? That's not my recollection. My best and what I feel to be a fairly strong recollection is Wilshire and Western. Uh, uh, and there was a bank in that building, uh, the, the lounge, the bar, whatever it was called occupied the corner. So you don't remember it being closer to Gramercy? I remember the name Gramercy, but I'm pretty sure that the corner that I'm talking about was Western, because Western was a big street that butted up to Wilshire. I'm, I'm confident of that geography. The interesting thing about my dad's story is that he kept insisting that the piano bar he visited was in the lobby of a large office building located at the intersection of Western and Wilshire. And as he states, the bar itself was situated in the corner of that building. And yet, all the pictures I was able to find of the executive room on Wilshire Boulevard revealed that it was a freestanding building over three blocks further west and that it was located between a deli and a Chinese restaurant. In short, it wasn't part of a large office building, it wasn't on a corner, 
and it appeared to be at a completely different intersection. So even though my dad happened to be in Los Angeles during the time that Billy Joel played piano at the Executive Room Cocktail Lounge, the more I listened carefully to the details of his story, the more it appeared that the facts he was relating just didn't match with the things I was able to dig up online. So then I decided to look for alternative references to Billy Joel's piano bar experience using the specific coordinates my dad kept insisting upon. And when I did an internet search for references to Billy Joel plus Piano Man that somehow related to the corner of Western and Wilshire, I discovered a 2014 LA Times article in which Joel himself mentioned that specific intersection during a live performance at the Hollywood Bowl. So I spent some time scouring YouTube for video clips related to that particular concert, and after quite some time, I finally stumbled on to this. This is a song about a gig I had on Western and Wilshire. 1973. In this short clip, Billy Joel seemed to confirm what my dad had been saying all along. He wrote the song Piano Man in 1973 at a bar that was located on Western and Wilshire, not Wilshire and Gramercy. Notice that he didn't say that the bar was located near Western and Wilshire, as if he was somehow only giving general coordinates. He specifically said that the bar was located on Western and Wilshire. This is a song about a gig I had on Western and Wilshire. So in light of this new revelation, I went back and checked the online sources which had placed the executive room piano bar further down Wilshire Boulevard near Gramercy. And as it turns out, the pictures I was able to find of this piano bar had actually been taken in 1978. In other words, that's where the cocktail lounge was located some five years later, and not necessarily where it was located in early 73. I also discovered something else. During an interview conducted by the Library of Congress in 2017, Billy Joel was asked a few questions about the backstory to his popular song, Piano Man. And in one of his answers, he says that the executive room piano bar is no longer there. I think it's a bank or an insurance building now, he said. This is a perfect match for the office building my dad kept referring to, which for many years included a bank in its lobby, and to this day still features in bold letters the name of an insurance company at its top, Pierce National Life. On the other hand, Billy Joel's comments don't fit at all with the secondary location near Gramercy, since that building, as it turns out, was later destroyed and converted into a parking lot for a strip mall. So after all the investigation I'd done into this matter, I was now convinced that my dad's story was entirely credible. While it was still possible that he had confused a different performer with Billy Joel, I was simply no longer able to falsify the major components of his account. He had been at just the right place and at just the right time. So I decided to share all this research with my dad while asking him a whole bunch of questions. And in preparation for that conversation, I searched around for a few more interviews in which Billy Joel explains the background to his song, Piano Man, with all its fascinating characters. This 1994 recording of an event that took place at Harvard University is my personal favorite. Um, one of my favorite songs is Piano Man, and I was wondering what exactly the story is behind all of the lyrics, even though it's somewhat self-explanatory. Okay. <laughs> all of the characters in that song actually were real people. John at the bar was this guy named John, and he... And he was at the bar. There was... Davy was in the Navy. 
and probably still is, you know. <laughs> Paul is a real estate novelist. Paul was this guy who was a real estate broker, but he was writing the great American novel. And Paul was always saying, I'm, gonna, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book. I'm uh, the great American novel. So that's a real estate novelist. Explains that. Let's see, what else? It's 9 o'clock on a Saturday. Okay. Regular, regular crowd shuffles in. Old man sitting next to me, making love to his tonic agenda. Okay, a little, little bit of poetic license there. Because I was now much more confident that my dad really had seen Billy Joel perform at this now famous piano bar, I wanted to know what else he might be able to tell me about his experience there. Did he happen to meet any of the people mentioned in the song, like John the bartender or Paul the real estate novelist? Had he met Davy, who was still in the Navy, or did he ever discuss politics with one of the waitresses? To find out, I brought some recording equipment to my dad's place, set it all up, and began asking questions. Your best recollection was that it was a tall building that you went to, like a... Yeah, it was a bank building. What would the name of the bank be? Don't remember. I have a pretty strong recollection of that building being at the corner of Western and Wilshire. And I just don't remember the name of the bank. So I did the I did some research today about the bank, because you kept saying bank. It looks like that building, which is called the... Pierce National Life building. The oh, base yeah. of it was a Bank of America. So you are correct. That memory is correct. There was a bank there. Yeah. It's I not see. there now, but it was there yeah. and it was a Bank of America. Oh, interesting. The main entrance to the building was on Wilshire. It's like if I'm standing on Wilshire looking at the bill, looking at the front door, back on the left side would be the bank. Okay. The right side, opposite the elevators, would have been the bar. Uh, so when you told me last time you had like an appointment with somebody in that same building, like higher up? Yeah. And so you came back down the elevator and then you stopped in the bar and Billy Joel was playing. Yeah, I got off the elevator and basically walked directly almost into the bar. So Billy Joel was at the Hollywood Bowl in 2014 and he mentioned the specific street names. He said, I had a gig on Western and Wilshire. And well, that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty defining. But it? nobody says that. If you look online, they all have it uh, like on Wilshire and Gramercy. I think what happened was the executive room moved after 73, maybe in 75 or 76. That's possible because yeah. these things turn over. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, they found a better lease. The other interesting thing is Billy Joel says, I don't think it's there anymore. It's just an insurance building or a bank or something. So he's connecting it to the right street and saying that the building's still there, but the, the lounge isn't. How are you getting this information? The internet is amazing. Wow. But the thing is that not all of it's accurate, you know? So you have to wade through it. I found that your memory from 50 years ago is more accurate than a lot of that schlock on the internet. I'm stunned. <laughs> Man, is the internet in trouble. <laughs> the internet is in more trouble than what it realizes. <laughs> My heavens. 
like I didn't find anybody talking about Western and Wilshire when I was looking at the location of Billy Joel's six month stint at the executive room. Nobody talked about Western and Wilshire until I heard it from you. I Google that. I find an L.A. Times article where he, Joel himself mentions it on Western and Wilshire. So that that really validates me. Well, I, let's not go too far. Well, I'll go there. <laughs> um, that bar or whatever it was called was definitely on the corner of Wilshire and Western. Would you describe the place as like a lower class, hole in the wall, a medium class, decent place or a high class kind of place? Oh, a, a medium high. Yeah. The, the bar, you mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The bar it was nice. Because the images they have online look a little bit more like hole in the wall. No. Uh, so that doesn't match up. No. And at that point, that is at or near what they call Wilshire Center. This was a neighborhood bar, clearly. I mean, it was in Wilshire Center. This was high-rise office buildings, mm -hmm. and that was it. Their clientele was already on site almost, you know. So it was, it was business clientele. Business clientele, absolutely. So people didn't come in there with blue jeans on. Right. They were already dressed. At that point in time, there was no such thing as business casual. Right. You were either right. dressed for business or you were not. Right. And he talks about businessmen in that song, so that seems to match with what you're saying. Yeah, it was definitely not a drop-in neighborhood bar. Would you say it was very populated or like not a whole lot of people in there? Not a whole lot. Really? There were people in there, but not a lot. Yeah. It wasn't packed, though, no, yeah. or it wasn't really crowded either. Where are you seated in the restaurant compared to where he's at? I think my back was more to the street and more to, to Western. Okay. I sort of remember his piano was sort of sitting slanted near the bar. And was there a sign that you read his name or was it just something you heard him say? This is something to think about. I came up with the name Billy Joel from some source. There was something happened there, either a sign or he, I think most likely announced himself as part of a, like a monologue that goes in between tunes. Yeah. As I recall, this was not like a special program. It just, if you happen to be in the, come in for a drink, you happen to see Billy Joel. Yeah, yeah. But you don't have any recollection of being there thinking, oh, I've heard this guy on the radio. No. The odd thing is that he, he says he was going by another name at the yeah, time. Yeah, he did. I had a gig in the piano bar for a while when I was laying out of the music business. And uh, I was working in a club in Los Angeles. I come out of New York, Long Island. But I figured I'll go to L.A. and I'll work in a piano bar. I made pretty good money, and I was calling myself Bill Martin at the keyboard. Bill Martin. And it was, uh, it was good bread, you know, and I, did, I had a whole other identity. I was real straight, you know, or I could be English if I wanted to be. You know, hello, how are you? Bill Martin. But you don't remember that name, right? No, not at all. And I don't know how to respond to that. Maybe I'm delusional. But, <laughs> but short of being totally delusional, it doesn't make sense that I would say, oh, and, and Billy Joel was there. I didn't get excited about it because he's not one of my favorites. It's Plus, he wasn't even famous at the time. So it wouldn't have registered to you that he was somebody to even think about yeah. getting an autograph or anything like that. If he wasn't famous or at least somewhat known, why would I even remembered his name. Well, the only re reason you would have would have been in, in hindsight. When Billy Joel becomes famous over the decades, oh, I, something clicked that you had seen him live. Yeah, yeah. That 
That I feel fairly confident. Interesting thing is that you did remember that it was Billy Joel and not Bill Martin. Because if if he had used the name Bill Martin, then you wouldn't have connected him to Billy Joel when he later became famous. For some reason, I glommed on to the name Billy Joel. Yeah. It didn't come out of thin air. Yeah. Uh, And on a scale of like surety, one being the least sure and a 100 being the most sure, how sure are you that the person you saw was Billy Joel? I'd say 95. I mean, yeah, it's uh, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I, I really would. Uh, and I would say 100, except, you know, I don't know if 100 is believable. You know, he says he used the name Bill Martin, but my best theory on that is that right after your time, somebody advised him, don't use your name, Billy Joel. And then later, as he tells the story, he says, I went by a pseudonym. But what history forgot was that there were a few times when he used his own name. Well, because that's the only anomaly that doesn't sort of fit. That could make a lot of sense. That scenario could make a lot of sense. In the beginning of his song, he talks about a man making love to his tonic and gin. Do you ever remember seeing anyone making love to a tonic and gin? No, and I'm pretty sure that I would have I would have remembered that one. <laughs> Cuz that guy that person that he's referring to 10 seconds later was on the floor. <laughs> struggling to get to his feet. <laughs> um, I'm really clear on where the bar was located, where his piano was located relative to the bar. Uh, can you remember what you had to drink? Huh? <laughs> I'm just wondering how specific can your memory be? <laughs> if I told, I'm pushing it. If I told you, <laughs> and you believe me, we'd both be in trouble. <laughs> But uh, you did say that you were not I a... did have one drink, only one drink. Only one drink, okay. Yeah. So then you weren't one of the businessmen who were slowly getting stoned. You know, getting sloshed after drink, after drink, after drink. <laughs> Was that somebody throwing stones at me? I, I, <laughs> well, that's one of the lines in the song. Yeah. Businessmen are slowly getting stoned. Yeah. But you did put a tip in his jar. He does reference that. They would come up and put a tip in his jar and say, man, what are you doing here? Did you ever use those words? I'm just trying to see if you're the guy in the song that he's... Oh, no, I know. <laughs> oh. that's not, I'm not that kind of person. Although it's possible I might've said, hey, you know, enjoy your music. Now- Would you mind like pretending as if you said, yes, I'm the guy who said, man, what are you doing here? Yeah, yes I am. (laughs) Light bulb just went on. You want my autograph? I didn't realize how famous I was until just now. Big light bulb. Did you have anything besides a drink? Nope. Okay. They had no kitchen there. They had no menu. It was it was simply a cocktail lounge. That was it. And of that, I am absolutely certain of. A straight cocktail lounge with a piano entertainment or whatever. Did you order from the bar or from a waitress? That's a good question. That one I hadn't thought about. I don't remember a waitress. So then I'm you probably sure. went up to the bar and got it. And then I went think to table. I'm more inclined to say that. So then if it's the bartender, do you remember if he was quick with a joke or to light up a smoke? Nope, not at all. I don't even have any active recollection of the bartender whatsoever. And you don't remember talking to Davey, who was still in the Navy? Davey in the Navy? That doesn't ring any bells at all. No, nobody was in there with like a sailor hat? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no. If they were in uniform... I would have remembered that because that just didn't happen. Not in the Wilshire district. You ever see a Navy sailor 
walking downtown and just taking a strange girl and kissing her. No, <laughs> but that is a famous, famous picture right after the Japanese surrender. Yep. That's a famous picture. Classic piece of Americana. Oh. So well, so is Piano Man, though. That's why we're having fun with all these questions. Can you remember any of the kinds of songs no. that Billy Joel played? Absolutely not. Was it was it just piano or was it him singing? He sang. He sang some. Was it kind of a mix of some piano and some singing? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he played and took a drink. And in between his numbers, every once in a while, he would say a few things. At one point when we talked about this, you said when you got up, you put a tip in his jar. Do you remember what kind of tip jar this was? I'm not sure. It either was a large brandy snifter or, yeah, probably was a large brandy snifter type container set on top of, in his case, on top of the piano where people could come up and, and, and drop something in. Well, that's how he describes his tip jar. It could have been a beer mug, but you came up with that description. Where are you getting this? I, I've been doing some research. I read a biography where he mentioned that kind of a wow. tip jar. I didn't know a person could find that kind of stuff. <laughs> so do you remember him talking with other patrons, not just playing, but also kind of talking and, and hanging no. out? No. Okay. No. No memory of that. And he stayed behind the piano. He, he didn't come out in front of the piano. Do you remember an old guy sitting at the bar? No, absolutely okay. not. Right. I, I, I couldn't remember one single soul that, that was in that facility other than Billy Joel. Do you remember if he took requests? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yes, he did. That is a pretty clear memory. How would he say it? I don't know. Would people just automatically go up to him and ask him, or would he would he mention it from the while he's paying? If you have any requests, yeah, know? if you have any, and people wouldn't necessarily go up; they would just kind of call it call out. Call it from, out. Yeah. And remember, there wasn't a big audience. This was not right. a huge place. I right. mean, you know. Can you remember any of the things that people called out? Like no. what? No. Music was played. Absolutely not. No recollection of that whatsoever. But you did say it was a mix between piano music and vocal. Yeah, yeah, he 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 mixed. Uh, but I think mainly, if I had to say it wasn't 50-50, he sang more than he did mm. play the piano. Uh, and what is, was he singing, like, easy listening? Or was he singing pop or rock and roll? Can't remember. Country western? No, no, it was no country western. Rap? No. <laughs> Hadn't been invented yet. I know that. <laughs> I'm just checking to see if you're still breathing. No, it, it's, it, <laughs> by the way, it's not a bad idea. Not a bad idea at all. Uh, all right, now, well. Now tell me, when did Billy Joel write that song? Do you he know? wrote that song during that period. Sometime uh, he records it in September of 73. And it, it's released in oh, November. So it's, it's right in there. Yeah, exactly. Was he singing open air or to a microphone? I want to say open air. I'm not sure that he was singing to a microphone. Well, that's more of a guess. Yeah. That's more of a guess. In, in the song Piano Man, he says, um, the microphone smelled like a beer. So there is a so, reference to a microphone. Sorry. So there was a microphone. And that, that's just a faulty recollection on my part. Well, I think it invalidates your whole story. I mean, you think there was open air singing and not a microphone? You, you couldn't have been there. It's a, you're a fraud. And happily so. <laughs> I just... I. I don't know that anybody has ever called me a fraud. I kind of like it.
So now, why did I decide to share this story with you? Well, I think it provides a simple way of explaining what it means to be a humble skeptic. You see, I initially believed my dad's story because, well, he's always been a trustworthy and reliable person, and I had no reason to doubt him. But when I later discovered that key aspects of his story conflicted with things I found online, that's when doubts began to emerge. Now, of course, I could have simply chosen to ignore all the contrary evidence, taking a sort of my dad said it, I believe it, that settles it approach. But that way of resolving the conflict completely fails to take into consideration the perspectives of those with contrary points of view. At its root, that kind of defensive posture is nothing more than blind faith. Blind faith is anything but humble. It's basically a way of saying that the view I hold is totally beyond question. It's right no matter what, and all other points of view aren't even worth considering. What is humble, on the other hand, is to actually think through the views and perspectives of others and to consider the possibility that you are the one who may be mistaken. This brings up another point. When I started questioning my dad's story, my goal was actually to find answers, to arrive at a particular conclusion. So even though I was skeptical in my approach, I didn't end up concluding that nothing at all could be known with any certainty. In other words, as with faith, we can also be overconfident in our doubt. Just as we can blindly believe something despite evidence to the contrary, so too we can also blindly refuse to believe things despite overwhelming evidence in their favor. Let's face it, human beings are divided about who we are and the kind of universe we inhabit. The problem, though, is that we just don't have a lot of forums for discussing and evaluating all the different worldview claims and options. And as a result, most of us just end up assuming the truth of the worldview provided for us by our surrounding culture, our parents, or our peers. But again, this is why we need both humility and skepticism, because given the important differences, all the world's cultures, parents, and peers just can't be right. And even if you happen to believe that all roads lead to the same place or that the religious quest is like blind men feeling different parts of the elephant, at the end of the day, you still end up disagreeing with all those who truly believe that their own faith is the one true path. One thing I've discovered over the years is that truth isn't afraid of questions. Those who are confident about their convictions love the opportunity to deal with objections and to clarify misconceptions. So whenever you encounter an individual or a group that discourages free and open questions or that censors opposing points of view, beware. This is a sign not of confidence but insecurity and is the hallmark of countless cults and totalitarian systems that work hard to keep you from thinking for yourself. We'll explore many belief systems of this kind on future episodes. After looking closely into the origins of the Christian faith over the past several decades, I'm more convinced than ever that this is the worldview that best accounts for reality, which is why I'll be spending a lot of time on this podcast making a case for my convictions and dealing with objections. But I should also point out that though I'm a believer, I still remain skeptical of much that passes for Christianity in our time. So on this podcast, I'll also be exploring many of the important differences that exist across all the various forms of Christianity, and which in some cases tragically results in counterfeit Gospels. Well, thanks for joining me for this pilot episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast, and I hope you'll join me as new episodes become available. Please help to get the word out by sharing this with friends and family. And if you'd like to help with the launch, you can find a link to support this podcast at HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again soon as together we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives.
long time ago in a club far, far away. I first produced this episode back in the fall of 2022, and since that time, I've uncovered additional information that sheds light on my investigation. First, I decided to share some of the evidence I uncovered with the owner of the website who posted all the detailed information about the alternative location for the executive room near Gramercy, but he remained unconvinced. The chief reason he cited was that according to phone books dating back to 1973, the address for the executive room actually matched the Gramercy location. Now, this certainly disproves the theory I put forward on this episode, that at one point after 1973, the executive room lounge ended up changing locations. But does this invalidate my dad's story? I don't think it actually does, since another possibility could be that the executive room had more than one location. What if the bar had opened up a kind of satellite location, there in the lobby of the office building that my dad visited on Western and Wilshire. Now, I admit that this may be seen as wishful thinking on my part, but it could also be thought of as a way of harmonizing all the various discrepancies. If, for example, Billy Joel performed at a bar on Wilshire and Gramercy, why did he keep insisting that it was on Wilshire and Western? Well, recently, my brother forwarded me an article from the American songwriter, which seemed to shed more light on the situation. The author of this piece referred to an interview that Billy Joel gave in light of the 50th anniversary of Piano Man. And in that conversation, Joel revealed that when he went back to visit the executive room some years later, the bar had been demolished. When I read that line to my wife, she responded by saying, So it looks like you were wrong after all. To be honest, that's what I thought as well. At least initially. You see, at first, this new information seemed to fit better with the Gramercy location, since that building had been demolished. But some of Billy Joel's other comments cited in this piece seem to point once again to the Western and Wilshire location. So once again, in light of the conflicting information... I decided to listen to the audio of this recent Billy Joel interview for myself. So this is a strange question. Like after you wrote Piano Man, I don't know if you ever went back to the executive room after it came out, but I'm wondering if you ever reconnected or stayed in touch with John at the bar or the real estate novelist or Davey who's in the Navy or the waitress who I understand was your girlfriend at the time. But I'm wondering in terms of if you have any idea what they thought of this song or where they ended up. Well, I tried to go back to see the place after I moved back to the East Coast. This was on um, Wilshire Boulevard and Western, Wilshire and Western, which is called the Wilshire District. And I uh, I drove to where the bar used to be, but it was gone. Uh, I think there's like an insurance building or something there, or maybe even condominiums. But the bar was gone and the people, you know, used to hang out at the bar. They were gone too. I don't know where really where any of them ended up. In this clip, once again, Billy Joel clearly states that the bar he performed at was on Wilshire and Western. And if you noticed, he didn't actually say that the executive room was demolished, just that it was gone. What was still there, he said, was an insurance building 
or maybe even condominiums. This doesn't fit at all with the Gramercy location, since once the building was destroyed, it simply became a parking lot for a strip mall. However, Joel's comments fit perfectly with the building my dad visited in 1973 on Western and Wilshire, which has numerous condominiums and still features the name of an insurance company at its top. What is gone, however, is the bar that used to be located in the lobby of this building, which is where I'm still convinced that Billy Joel performed as a lounge singer and which served as the inspiration for Piano Man. Well, thanks again for joining me. And if you'd like to share this story with friends and family, you can either forward them a link to this podcast or you could send an article I've written that includes pictures of the two possible locations for the executive room, along with numerous footnotes related to my investigation. You can find this article on the top right corner of humbleskeptic.com. That's humbleskeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Mm -hmm.